get to hear from Levinson. In fact, I'm going to take a back seat, and Manny will also join in from time to time. But we're going to turn the reins over and the microphone over to Virginia, to uh, to a very guest a guest star we're privileged to have tonight. And uh, Nancy is going to tell us. And let me begin by introducing her by saying that uh, many of us here in South Florida, and, and Nancy, welcome to Key Biscayne, but many of us are Hamilton fans, and uh, that's the reason why we have you tonight, is to talk about uh, you know, why uh, all these Hamiltonians are on the same page and might be interested in getting your book and going to your website that we're going to talk about. And uh, in my case, Statutes and Stories, we focus on, Manny said, the colonial period and the early American period after the Revolutionary War, we're grounded in the 1780s, the 1790s, 1770s. But then everyone knows Hamilton passed away in 1804 because of the duel. But not only are you an expert with regard to Hamilton when he was alive, but Hamilton's legacy and what his legacy means today. So let me give you an opportunity to do better than me to introduce yourself. And I do want to mention two of the things I know you've written, because you are the co-author of Political Economy in the American Revolution, written in 1977. So you've been at this for a while. And also the book, which just came out last year, Hamilton versus Wall Street, the core principles of the American system of economics, which we are very interested in talking with you about. So uh, now that we know some of the, of the writings that you've done, tell us a little bit about yourself. Well, I'm, uh, as you can tell by when I did my first book, I'm a rather elderly lady. Um, so, uh, and I was in journalism for a good number of years. Um, and then I... But I started with Hamilton in the 70s because I was looking for what went on in American history that uh, could help get us out of the economic trouble we were in in the 1970s. <laughs> wow, quite a, um, quite a visionary and for... I found the report on manufacturers and what Hamilton had to say of a profound nature on the question of how wealth is created and the importance of developing the intelligence and the creativity of the human mind in creating wealth, I was blown away because that had nothing to do with what I learned in Economics 101 um, and not much of what I thought was going on in the way the economy was being run in the government. So I very much uh, started working on it. <laughs> and um, when... First, this book of writings, which includes the history from Europe going into the American Revolution, and then the book on Hamilton, because uh, it all of a sudden Hamilton with the musical was something people were willing to study. <laughs> and I wanted to take advantage of that, so I wrote a short book. Unlike Chernow, this is 240 pages. Um, you can get it on Amazon. You can get it at my publisher. I'm a self-published author, iUniverse.com. Um, or you can get it from my blog, um, which is AmericanSystemNow.com. Um, Nancy, I'm going to pause you for together. a second. Let me pause you real quick. So, so, Manny, are you hearing a little bit of feedback? No, I actually I'm hearing her very clearly, and I'm hearing you very clearly here on WSQF Blink Radio, Kibis K, 94.5. All right, sorry for interrupting. So the question I was going to ask it, and I apologize for uh, stepping on what you were mentioning, but you mentioned the report on manufacturers, Nancy, and we mentioned your first name. Help us with the pronunciation of your last name, by the way. Thanos. It's, it's actually of German origin, my, my husband's. I took my husband's name. 
Uh, but I have my maiden name in the in the title, I'm Nancy Bradine Spanos. I think okay. it's Scottish. Anyway. Yeah, so, we'll we'll announce your book. We'll uh, we'll sorry, repeat. I'm asking about the report on manufacturers, and some people are familiar that Hamilton during his career. Um, you know, was responsible for all kinds of writing. The guy did not stop. So with regard to the report on manufacturers, why do you think that's important? And I know you've described it, this report on manufacturers, as the Rosetta Stone of Hamilton's thinking. Why do you say that? And tell us more about his report on manufacturers. Well, I believe that the most, it's the most developed uh, piece of writing on his thinking. He never wrote a book, never wrote an autobiography, that he wrote a 30,000-word treatise on which it has a whole theoretical part and a whole uh, how-to-do-it part, uh, which drew on the fact that he and the Treasury Department did a whole survey over more than a year of what the state of manufacturers was in the United States. The purpose of this report was set up by the Congress and George Washington, which was... How do we be, have the capability to defend ourselves uh, in a world which is dominated by empires that have not really reconciled themselves to, <laughs> to the independent United States? Um, how, and that was the mission that he was set out to do. He was set out to do it, uh, I think, in early 1790. Um, but he didn't get the report done until almost 1792 because he did a lot of work on it. So he was at pains to go after the resistance to manufacturing because everyone thought, well, manufacturing is just this dirty thing for Europe, right, and it oppresses people. Um, and he said and that it actually will make you poorer and create terrible conditions. And he said, no, no, this is not the case at all. It's going to make us richer. Um, it's combined with agriculture, not instead of agriculture, combined with commerce. And this is going, um, is a, because we can develop our, with our mechanical genius, and he said the United States already had a mechanical genius in its population, begin to develop and increase our productivity. We'll have complementary strengths in different parts of the economy, and we can grow dramatically with increasing progress. Um, so that's the, the short beginning version, but we have some time. <laughs> okay, so let, let me give more background for everybody. So listeners of this show know that Hamilton worked very closely with Washington during the Revolutionary War. And uh, as an attorney, I could ask you leading questions or I could ask you non-leading questions. So we'll do a combination of the <laughs> you, two. But, but, leading as you want. No <laughs> judge, right? That's right. No Unless one's Manny's going to be the judge. I don't know. Yeah, I could do that. So you can rule on some of the questions. But well, basically, you know, what Hamilton saw, and I'll ask it to you in the form of a question, but what, what did Hamilton and Washington and others who were in that military family and who struggled for the seven or so years of resisting the British, what did they understand about what was the weakness of our system when we were just a colony reliant upon and, you know, serving the mothership, if you will, in London? So what, what was some of the lessons they learned, having been on the lines of trying to hold everyone together, meaning hold the 13 states together, uh, 
uh, to, to you know stand up to the British and ultimately be successful in 1783. What was the what were some of the lessons that they took with them? Well, there were a lot, and as you know, Hamilton was right in the catbird seat, so to speak, uh, being right the right hand man of Washington and looking strategically at what was going on. Um, well, one example that I know somewhat specifically was gunpowder. I mean, prior to this the Revolutionary War, all the gunpowder powder came from England. So uh, that's a problem if you've decided that you're going to have a revolution against the mother country. Now, can I uh, ask? Can I ask a question? Um, what validity are is there at this moment in time in our history that the gunpowder came? from the Itmus Peninsula, which is now, you know, the area of Panama and the Panama Canal, coming from the far the far east during this War of Independence through Cuba, through the Mississippi River, to fund Washington's troops in that manner. Have you ever read anything to that? Because I, I mention it all the time when I'm speaking with Adam, because I did some research around this time, 1781 to 1783, when the the battles were occurring um, in the Gulf of Mexico, and one of the reasons for the the Cuban Navy to Spanish Navy, I shouldn't say Cuban. I'm kind of partisan in that regard. Of the Spanish Navy shutting down the Mississippi River was to secure uh, Andrew Pollock's negotiations and arms dealing, which included gunpowder up the Mississippi River. Is there any truth or any uh, I don't know a validation to my theories? Um, I'm not familiar with that part from the from the Panama area. What I do have some sense of is the importance of the of the Caribbean islands. Okay. In the supplies. So it'd be uh, more French French related. The gun well, po- not just. I mean, everybody was there. <laughs> well, I mean, it was. Uh, I'm talking about the source of the gunpowder. Uh, so it wouldn't really be the Far East gunpowder? Oh, yes. There was a lot of gunpowder coming from the French. That's okay. That's for sure. I mean, the French were were enormous suppliers uh, of the Revolution. and uh, But Hamilton and, and Washington were very well aware that they could not uh, manage unless there was a domestic base. Because once you're relying on the oceans... <laughs> You're up against the British Navy, and you are in very big trouble. So, what they they saw that, and they saw it financially, uh, when of course there was all this flooding of the country with counterfeit currency, on top of the problems of the uh, inflation, which was going on in the to try to pay bills when they had absolutely no taxing power no ability to get money from the states. So they, he, Hamilton said in the early 1780s, you know, the real, to, I think it was to Robert Morris, the real question here as to whether we're going to have a successful revolution is not military, it's economic. You know, will we have, and he began to put forward his proposals for a national bank, and the, of course the idea of having that national bank was very much related to credit for agriculture and industry because we had to have it. And they, um, you know, were very anxious to break 
the controls which were going on from the fact that we were getting our, our clothing goods, our, our heavy machinery, and so forth and so on, all coming from abroad. I think that gives a you know a good background is that they understood you can't be reliant upon any other countries. What can we do now that we're an independent country? So Congress, as you said, asks Hamilton to do a report. He does a lot of homework. He gets data from up and down the coast and from the, the burgeoning and growing federal government, from those in the ports and others that he's asking in writing and getting information and data. So he puts together this massive 30,000-word report, and you've, you've already gotten a little bit to the, the banking system that he puts in place. But is there any more about the report on manufacturing? That you want to that you want to tell us about, and or do you want to tell us? And at some point, we can talk about today. But uh, and any more of the underpinnings of that massive thirty thousand word report of, of why it was meaningful and why it was in many ways revolutionary. When you look at so much data and so much detail, and then so foresighted in terms of what Hamilton was was looking to accomplish. Well, there there are a couple things I'd want to emphasize um, off the bat. Uh, one is his his rejection of free trade, which was the policy that was being put forward in England at that time uh, by Adam Smith and the financiers behind Adam Smith, uh, because he was not an independent academic by any means. Um, so that so while Hamilton quotes Adam Smith on the fact that you can't just have an agricultural economy. He then attacks Adam Smith, not by name, but in the content of the argument, that you can, we cannot afford to sit back and wait for what, you, what Smith would have called the natural course of things to develop and people to accumulate enough money on their own in other ways in order to set up manufacturing. We have to do it now. We have to have the government to actually provide the basis to do that. We have to encourage it. We have to, and he, then he goes through a whole list of ways to encourage it. Yeah, like funding uh, research and development through taxpayers. Including research and development. He has, you know, a, that's a surprise to many people that he has this commission on arts and sciences that he wants to set up. He wants to, from the aid to infrastructure, particularly transportation. Um, he wants tariffs. He wants bounties, which is basically uh, giving subsidies uh, to industries that are crucial. And then a very few, he says, a ver there are very rarely do you want the government itself to do the production, but in the case of the armories, yes, indeed. Uh, we want to have make sure that those are secure um, in order to have them at our disposal. So those are two things that I would like to emphasize on the report. Um, Nancy, if I could jump in with just some terminology for everybody. So, so one term, and when you mentioned how Hamilton was not a free trader in this environment, you know, and when he was reacting to, he's agreeing with some of 
of Adam Smith, and he is disagreeing with in other parts of what Adam Smith wanted. And uh, folks may recall that Adam Smith, the book that he wrote, which had, you know, was basically just come out at that time, The Wealth of Nations, uh, takes a position of largely a laissez-faire. That's the word I want to use. So if you want to tell us what does laissez-faire uh, and uh, you know, sort of expand upon uh, why Hamilton was not a free trader, and it, I think it makes perfect sense. If we're a new country and we have to hit the ground running, you know, well, what were the reasons why he wants this report that's going to give the reasons of what the country needs to do so we can stand on our own two feet and not be reliant upon the British? And you know, that's where some of the controversy comes in today when people talk about uh, tariffs, when people talk about free trade. And uh, you know, that's, that's, I think, maybe on another show, you'll perhaps have that kind of a conversation with Manny about how do we apply these principles in 2020. But uh, let's get maybe back to a little bit of the basics. So what is laissez-faire, what is free trade, and if, if you could, as part of that detailed answer, um, you know, for, for Adam Smith, when he wrote The Wealth of Nations, what did Smith consider wealth to be for a country? And um, I'm going to ask you a follow-up question about you know, when we compare laissez-faire with uh, the mercantilist doctrines which existed you know, prior to the Revolution. Oh, boy. <laughs> this is a this is like a college class, Adam. <laughs> uh, and by the way, people should know that you teach classes, college classes, and uh, before the radio show ends, before the end of the night, I want to just tell people that uh, I want to say this month you were speaking. Maybe I'll just ask you where were you speaking this month, just so people know who we have on. Why I'm asking you all these uh, these tough questions. Well, um, I was very privileged to be able to present my book, and. Just to give another plug for the book, um, Hamilton versus Wall Street. Please go to Amazon or iUniverse or AmericanSystemNow.com. Um, that uh, to present it to the Treasury Historical Association. Uh, this is a group that's been around. Oh gosh, I don't remember. A couple of decades, I think. Uh, and they consider. I do remember. That, I did my homework. 1973. Okay. There you go. Um, yeah, I did my homework, too, but I forgot. No, um, no, Adam told me I had to do my homework to prepare for this show. <laughs> well, you're you're right on top of things. Yeah, I'll be That's flunking great. out of the class before it starts, you know. Right. So they, um, it's a voluntary organization uh, paid for by dues from uh, employees of the Treasury. Uh, and they have an every other month... Um, lecture series at lunchtime, uh, but they do, uh, and I had it scheduled for May, and then, of course, COVID came, and therefore, <laughs> I was unable to go there in person. It's, they have it in this, what's called the cash room of the Treasury, which is an absolutely gorgeous big room um, where they had, used to have the cash a <laughs> long, long time ago, when the Treasury building was built, which is under the Lincoln administration. Well, it's actually when and the government had cash. <laughs> and the government has no cash now. It just prints it into thin air. <laughs> anyway, this is the cash room, and it's it's an absolutely gorgeous room, and it was used for Grant's inauguration, a ball, apparently. So you can tell it must have been posh. So anyway, this got canceled, so they had a... Um, I got in touch with them, hoping that they would be having it again. Uh, and they said no, but they were going to start virtually. By uh, And would I like to be the first guinea pig? Uh, so I said yes. I'm uh, very anxious. 
So uh, I was able to speak for an hour. It's very strictly an hour um, to the employees, open it up to some people that I invited. I was allowed to invite people. And um, it, there were technical glitches, but other than that, I think it, it went well. So it's generally a, a PowerPoint that I put together on Hamilton's report on manufacturers and its influence throughout the world. So anyway, back if I can remember the question that was asked. Let me repeat on it for Smith, everybody. Just at, at a high level, Nancy, I'm going to step away for the phone for a second because the cleaning crew is coming into the building. But that's I'm going to close my door. But just if you wanted to compare the, the concepts of laissez-faire versus um, the mercantilist doctrines and where does Hamilton sort of fit in in terms of his economic theories. And I will be right back. Okay. Well, laissez-faire was basically invented by the people who had the power to uh, control the markets internationally. Uh, what the British Empire and the other empires wanted to do is they wanted to be the producers of the finished goods and get the raw materials from their colonies and the uh, and set the price for all of this. Uh, and they didn't want the colonies to develop their own manufacturing. Uh, they wanted to make their money off trade um, and, and uh, what do you call it, uh, buy cheap, sell dear. Right? <laughs> That's kind of the, uh, the, the, wrong, the, the wrong premise in modern times when we decided to abandon the American manufacturing for China. It's low, low wager, you know, low wages. Absolutely, and and of course, and that was one of the arguments, Manny, that we couldn't have manufacturing because already back in the 1790s, our our artisans, uh, the people who became manufacturers, were better paid than they were in Europe, and people said, well, you can't have a workforce which is better paid, and Hamilton said, yes, you can. You can as long as you are technologically uh, advanced. And not only are we, do we have that capability with machinery, but we can develop it more. So anyway... The word but, innovate. Hamilton wanted to innovate. Absolutely. So he was a visionary. And that, so what, the, what Smith was arguing and what Shelburne and the people behind him Lord Shelburne and the people behind him were arguing is they knew perfectly well that the way that England developed its manufacturing capability was, I guess you would say, with your mercantilist measures, with measures of protection, um, with support by the government. But they didn't want their, their colonies and other countries in the world to do the same thing because they wanted those markets open for them to determine, uh, you know, what what the price was going to be and and get a, a major advantage by um, buying cheap from their colonies the raw materials such as what they got from the United States cotton, for example, and then working it up into manufactured goods, sending it back and getting whatever price they want and making the money off that off the cheapness of the labor in 
the United States. And it was also, wasn't it yeah. also pretty clear that, that time, is, time as money wasn't such a big factor because, it, you know, the shipping, the shipping lanes and the cargo out at sea was very so unpredictable you really couldn't quantify how much loss of time was going to cost the goods. So the labor had to be super cheap and the colonies had to produce raw material, couldn't manufacture themselves or else that whole equation would fall apart. Yeah, right. So that's why uh, that's why Adam Smith said it would be, but he put it as if he had the interest of the colonies at heart, he, he, as the United, you know, the American colonies at heart. He said, oh, you know, you'd ruin yourself if you tried to develop manufacturers. You'd be throwing money away and so forth and so on. And Hamilton said, no, <laughs> we would be absolutely uh, wretched and, and impoverished if we don't develop our own manufacturers. In fact, you know, we've seen being looted in this way, and that's that's really what it was, being looted in this way. Now, on the mercantilism question, I was provoked by your previous post to go back and look at... Let me pause you for a second. So, listeners of the show know there are multiple ways you can get into this information. You can listen to us live, you can listen to the podcast, you can go to statutesandstories.com, and that's where we've got a post talking about mercantilism and various other Hamilton-related legal issues and other topics. And then, Nancy, that's another opportunity. What is, what is the name of your website? Because you post in detail about Hamilton's economic theories and, and how to translate that today. So, again, what is the name of your website? AmericanSystemNow.com. All one word, American System uh, It's now. all together, and it's, you know, it has that HTTPS colon slash slash in front of it, you know, but I think if you just put in americansystemnow.com, you know, no capitals straight, but uh, you'll get it. Okay. And, uh, I, I, sorry, I interrupted you. Continue. No, no, you can, you, anyway, that's the place to go. It has a lot about the book, uh, as well as a lot about other areas of American history, and the reason I call it American System is because most people think of the American system having been established by Henry Clay in the 1820s. But in fact, Hamilton specifically uses the term American system in Federalist Number 11. But I mean, more importantly, the ideas in the American in the uh, report on manufacturers, which involve the protection of industry and labor. Uh, the credit for the development of the country um, and the need for infrastructure, all of which were elements of the, are considered the major elements of the American system, are all there. They're there and they uh, live on uh, in ways that we can discuss. Um, so no. anyway, on the mercantilism question, I think it's... I went back, and I can refer you to the uh, Political Economy of the American Revolution book, because I, I was a co-editor of that uh, with a fellow who had done a lot of original research on the ground uh, in France. He was a British, uh, but he went to France and studied Colbert, uh, came up with a lot of documents, original documents, and study of this. And um, his 
he has a major essay in that book, which I'm sure you'll be fascinated by. And he says that there are there's a difference in the way that Colbert, whom Hamilton uh, specifically praised in the Continentalist Papers, um, and whom I consider to be one of the precursors of his thought. Well, let me pause you real quick. So the Continentalist Essays, these were written... And this is uh, starting during the Revolutionary War, and then continuing probably until the seventeen, the early seventeen eighties. And uh, this is he wrote them in seventeen eighty two, I believe. Seventeen eighty two, and yeah. uh, basically he's laying out the war is not yet over. Seventeen eighty three is the Treaty of Paris. He's beginning to lay out, seeing that the end of the war is eventually going to, you know, we're eventually going to win this war. But he, he's looking ahead to the future. He's looking ahead to what do we have to do to translate our victory in war into building a country. So this is another example of Hamilton, you know, looking to the future and uh, looking how to translate this into a, a new na- to nation build, right? To look, the American system is what you were talking about. Uh, now, but, uh, please I keep uh, interrupting, so continue. I, I need to interrupt, too. Let the audience know who your co-author was so that they could find this uh, this book. Well, they, they should get the book. Um, the book is called The Political Economy of the American Revolution. And, and uh, okay. you know, it, it comes up under my name okay. Um, okay. as well. It won't necessarily come up under his name because he's not active okay, in the fantastic. way that I am. But um, it's in, if you go to that website, WorldCat, you know, it's in a, over 100 libraries in the uh, globally and may very well be in libraries down there, because, of course, this came out in 1977. It was reprinted uh, in a slightly updated version in 1996. Uh, So it's been around for a long time, and it's been circulated heavily. It's It's writings, right? But a lot of those writings are from the mercantilist period in England, um, and then, but the most valuable thing that I see in the book is this uh, long essay on Colbert, where my friend, his name was Chris White, um, right, you know, makes a distinction between a mercantilist system, which is based on simply increasing the uh, the take from your trade and developing the industries that you can market so that you then, you know, get a get a bigger take, you know, you make more money off your trade, to from an economy that is working on developing its industries in order to advance the living standards and productivity of its population. So you're where you see your population as your and its its quality of being able to produce better and better, um, including human knowledge, better and better, um, as opposed to trying to accumulate more money, <laughs> uh, measuring your uh, accomplishments as a as a nation by how much gold you have in your vat you know, in your 
vault. Well, the, the, it's clear for everybody that under the mercantilist system, what's the king of England, what's the king of France trying to do? They thought an economic system was all about putting money or gold into the vaults of the king or queen to support their army and to support their, you know, the royal establishment. Whereas when Hamilton is looking at some of these names that you've mentioned, Colbert, and, and Manny, I'm joking with everybody, this is not Stephen Colbert. These are, these are French <laughs> economists and, and, and other economists in the 1780s, and, and that's one of the things that Hamilton would do. You know, he would get into the weeds and study you know, what made England successful, what made France successful, what can we learn from them, but what can we improve upon what they were doing. So um, at, at some point, Nancy, I'm going to ask you when you're ready to, to pivot from mercantilism to the in, you know, launch further than just Hamilton's report, but how much of it was adopted? And I'm going to ask you at some point to talk about Pisaic, New Jersey, and Patterson. Okay. Well, um, the, um, the report itself was put on the shelf. However, uh, as, my, as numerous people have pointed out, uh, the actual recommendations for increased duties on certain goods uh, that were had to be promoted in the United States, particularly the ones specifically military-related, were actually enacted. Um, so I think my friend who actually runs the Patterson Partnership um, up there in Passaic, New Jersey, um, had had it documented of how many of those uh, recommendations were actually implemented. So people did pay attention. It was, as, as you've pointed out on uh, Statutes and Stories, uh, published in the uh, American Museum by Matthew Terry, uh, and then technically on the other side <laughs> of the political divide, uh, uh, more of a Jeffersonian politically, but very much tuned to the necessity for economic development as Hamilton was laying it out. Um, now, Hamilton did do a pilot project, one could say, uh, on manufacturers uh, in setting up a society for useful manufacturers in uh, what became Patterson, New Jersey. Uh, Passaic Falls, uh, which is there in Patterson, New Jersey, is was the most powerful waterfall. In Let me the pause there real quick. And Manny, we're going to put you on the spot here, and we're going to put the listeners on the spot. So if, if Hamilton is proposing, and remember, he had all kinds of ideas, all kinds of ideas he's throwing out there in proposals. So here's a proposal to, to do a pilot, as Nancy was describing, a pilot program to start developing American manufacturing. And they, they, he decides, you know, where should we try to do this? You know, this uh, area where we want to start inculcating and, and building infrastructure for, for manufacturing. And he chooses a location in New Jersey, and New Jersey doesn't have much in the way of uh, waterfalls, but at a location with a waterfall. So this is before nuclear energy. This is before you have, uh, you know, steam-powered, um, you know, turbines. And, uh, so hydraulic, uh, the, fir- the beginnings of hydraulic power. Exactly. So there you go. So the reason Nancy will, will take it forward. So they need a location where they can get a power source. So continue. <laughs> so this is an extremely powerful waterfall. Uh, and uh, the idea was to use that water to run the machinery. Um, so and build the relevant canals, traces, and other uh, ways to get it where it needed to go. 
So this was in, uh, actually, he wrote the prospectus uh, right before he came out with the report on manufacturers. And the thing went into gear uh, in early 1792. And, uh, but immediately, uh, and he helped us hiring, and Hamilton personally was involved in hiring people from Europe with skills. Uh, the idea was not just, it wasn't to be a mill town, right, like a, like in New England, where everything was around a, a woolen mill or something like that. It was to have a variety of different kinds of industries. And um, the, he hired Pierre L'Enfant to uh, the uh, major layer out of Washington, D.C., to come up and lay the thing out to set up the structure for the way the water would be channeled to the productive plant. Uh, there was to be a little town there. The town became Patterson, New Jersey. Um, so it was all being laid out and, and set up, and New Jersey uh, cooperated. Uh, actually, the mayor, the governor was then Patterson. <laughs> the town was named after him. Uh, I'm smiling that you know they're politically astute, right? If you want to get the yeah. governor to cooperate, what better way than to name the town after the governor? Right, right. So, uh, so uh, I have to, uh, they agreed to. Uh, I have a, 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 a technological question. Since electricity is not invented yet, uh, this this waterfall was going to power like uh, kind of like a mill. The water wheels. Water wa- wheels. Water wheels to what to. Uh, to, uh, to churn to, cotton to, or to churn cheese or milk or something like that? Well, to churn, to to uh, operate a loom, for example. Okay. They're, they're, yeah, I want the audience to get a grip on For the, for the cloth production, which okay. was one of the elements that would be, that would be used. Um, it, a whole systems of belts, right, um, that could be moved by wo- moving a water wheel. Um so there's an, uh, actually a fascinating, and they have a lot of stuff online now, uh, museum in Patterson uh, run by the city, uh, which has uh, examples of the way that the technology was working at that time. And um, ultimately, Patterson became an extremely important silk producer um, in the uh, mid-early to around the middle of the 19th century. Um, anyway, the, the, in the 1790s, it was hit by a financial fraud. Right? Um, so it operated between 1794 and 96, and then it sort of, you know, wasn't able to operate, didn't have the funds. Although the state of New Jersey had agreed to do a lottery to help fund it, uh, you know, prospectus went out for investors. They could use actually U.S. government bonds as one of the ways of putting money into there. Um, but after um, it ran into this trouble and fraud, um, it got... And let me, let me point out, the AHA Society, Alexander Hamilton Awareness Society, I always like to be very careful you know, when the word um, you know, fraud is thrown around in connection with Hamilton. There was no fraud by Hamilton. These were people... No, who absolutely worked, no right. fraud Hamilton by was Hamilton. clean and he was... You know, he was a by the book, but but those who were working or administering the Patterson project uh, were, were not as on, was not, were not as honest as Hamilton. Now, also there was issues over uh, we didn't have a legitimate 
national currency yet, correct? Many states had their own land-grant currencies. The specie was floating out there, a super hyperinflation. There wasn't really a dollar per se. So well, It was just beginning to be the currency. Right. Um, so that has something to do with the fraud, right, I'm sure. It, it was happening right at the time when all those institutions to create a currency were going on. <laughs> Uh, 1791 and 1792. So, uh, but the the certificates were uh, of ownership and so forth. The National Bank was in existence. Um, I think that came in existence, you know, about six months or so before, um, but almost contemporaneous, actually, with this. So, um, when, when you think about it. But the... Uh, so, but it was definitely fraud. I mean, William, it was William Dewar. He actually stole the money um, and uh, created a, a very big problem and was a bad PR. <laughs> now, William Dewar was a banker or was he an entrepreneur? Who was William Dewar? He was a, I believe he was a lawyer, uh, maybe. Really? Hey, Adam, do you hear me? A lawyer started the mess. Yes. <laughs> Uh-huh. He was a patriot during the war. Yeah. Said Grady. It's he been a, it's been Grady. a central theme here on Statues and Stories whereas, you know, oh, come on. the studio host is constantly needling the attorneys when they show up and Hamilton do... was a lawyer too. Yeah, I lawyers, know. Lawyers of course back then were not quite the same as quite as specialized as lawyers today. Um they uh to get a legal education you had to get a very broad Philosophical education, maybe you do today. I don't know, but uh, anyway, the uh, it by the the point I wanted to finish making though is that by the early part of the 19th century, uh, the SUM became a going concern again. Colt uh, from Connecticut, uh, ultimately the Colt. Uh, Nancy, help us with that abbreviation or with that anacronym, the SUM. Society for Useful Manufacturers. Actually, they, I think technically it was Society for, to, for Employment of Useful Manufacturers or something, but everybody called it SUM. And the, and the SUM is the Patterson Project. Or the That's the Patterson Passaic Project on the Passaic Falls. There we go. Right. And there is discussion of that in... Uh, Hamilton versus Wall Street, because it's a very good example of, uh, in fact, the difficulties it have had too are a very good example of the fight that Hamilton had, not only with people in the South, the you know agrarians who, like Jefferson said, they hated cities, they hated manufacturing, they didn't want to see it here, but also with people in the North who wanted to. Use the uh, who wanted to speculate themselves into grand wealth as opposed to invest for a longer term in building up the country. And so Hamilton had a fight on both sides um, in order to. I mean, that, and that's just domestically. Of course, there was inter, there were international fights as well to try to get a manufacturing perspective through. Okay, here's another question for, I've always intrigued ever since I learned this from Adam. What uh, in his business model or business plans, considering he had so many ideas in the early industrialization of the colonies, uh, why was his 
brilliant idea of the consumption tax never really became popular, never really was taken seriously, when in fact it turns out to be the most uh, provocative and the most intelligent, the most efficient idea even today had we had a consumption tax uh, that's shared uh, between the states and the federal government, uh, we would have averted the disaster that is the income tax that's taxing wages and crushing the middle class. What was it that that Alexander failed to articulate at the time, or who were his enemies or opposition to his consumption tax that some people believe kept him from um, ever being president of the United States? Well, you know, I, I never really, in, in what I've read, heard it discussed as a consumption tax. Um, or a sales very tax. very wary of taxation. Um, you know, most of the income was coming from uh, customs. Uh, okay, so tariffs. so from uh, from tariffs and imports. So, uh, yes. you, uh, with in all he, this, he, he had the excise tax on the you know on the whiskey and the, uh, basically he considered that like a sin tax, right? Yeah, that's um, true. Still and, is. And <laughs> uh, but he was he was extremely wary because he knew the. I mean, we just came out of a revolution where people were very upset about taxes, plus the. Uh, in the in the pre-constitution period, there was an also uh, a very heavy taxation burden for paying for the war, and he wanted to alleviate that. In fact, the, I, I just read there's a new book out, Adam. I don't know whether you've looked at it. I'm going to review it at some point. Oh, and Manny too on it. Uh, called Radical Hamilton by uh, Christian Parenti. Now this guy, you know, has a lot of weird ideas because he's a he's a super leftist. But um, he also has extremely valuable information. He he writes most of the book. He says it's his main point is like mine uh, to promote Hamilton's report on manufacturers as a, a radical break from the economic ideas of the past. So. That is valid as far as I'm concerned, and I'm extremely happy about that because that means that the purpose of my book, which was to promote discussion of Hamilton's economic ideas, particularly the report on manufacturers, is you know when the in, is advanced, right? Um, but uh, he all, he has a tremendous amount of detail on the buildup to the. Uh, reports, and uh, most of the book is basically that. And he points out that uh, studies have been done to show that Hamilton's assumption of the state debts and centralization, which he considered and which was essential for national unity and all of I agree. Capitalized the the, the uh, bank, he said that resulted in a lowering of taxation dramatically in the states. Now, I never heard that before. Right, let me uh, pick up with that strand. So, before, and this gets into, you know, what was Hamilton proposing and what was Jefferson disagreeing with, but Hamilton was saying, because the war was fought to help and to create a federal government, the states shouldn't have to pay for the burden of the war, because ultimately the product was a new federal government. Let the federal government 
through the tariffs and through the, the the bundle of taxes that Hamilton had to put in place. And you mentioned the excise tax, the whiskey tax. There was also a carriage tax that we've talked about on statutes right. and stories. So um, by having it all done at the federal government, that frees the states from having to pay those debts. Right? It's more efficient to have the federal government do it. And you know, that led to you know, Hamilton's system of... Um, and this is a whole separate conversation, but uh, you know, assuming that the debt, which was controversial, and deciding how it should be paid, and was it that those, and this gets into what is a, a security, and what, what does a, you know, reliable, and, and this gets into what investors need, which is a confidence that if a government issues a debt or a bond, then the government's going to stand behind it. Uh, but, uh, you know, putting aside these, the assumption question, which was very controversial, and I think Hamilton was right, Jefferson and Madison were wrong. Um, and you mentioned, by the way, and I'll get to a question in a second, but you, so this is a little bit of a segue. So you mentioned, yes, Hamilton was involved in creating the Mint. You mentioned that Hamilton was involved in um, you know, making sure that uh, these proposals for manufacturers were, were put, out, put on the table. He's involved in creating a bank of the United States to hold the taxes and to, hold, to pay off the debt. Right, so these are all Hamilton proposals. But after he dies in 1804, and after Jefferson comes in in 1800, and we've done shows talking about the Revolution of 1800 when the Democrat Republicans, which is Jefferson and Madison's party, uh, take the reins of power in the year 1800. So what did uh, here's the question: What did Jefferson and Madison and the Democrat Republicans think of Hamilton's proposals, which were detailed, among other places, in the report on manufacturers by Hamilton? Well, uh, Jefferson was livid about uh, the fact that Hamilton had gotten as far as he had uh, with the bank, um, and he and with the, the uh, taxation level that he had, um, and he told his his Treasury Secretary Gallatin, you know, investigate this. Of course, there had been bumping up investigations of Hamilton's. Uh, financial system while he was still Treasury Secretary, and every time it came out clean. So he said, well, there must be a mistake, you know, you know, investigate it again. And Gallatin came back and said, this is the best system that could possibly have been set up. There's no, you can't dismantle it. So he didn't dismantle it, but what he did was instead of using the national banking system as a means of investing in developing the country, making it more wealthy, he used it simply to pay down the debt and the uh, cut the funds for the Navy, which was a, made a disaster in uh, the War of 1812, you know, cut all the taxes and cut that, I mean, <laughs> Washington had all these embassies around the world in order to develop positive diplomatic relations and trade relations, uh, they cut those all back. So it was a major austerity regime, um, which turned out to be an absolute disaster. And one of the reasons that Matthew Carey, who was carrying the torch for Hamilton's report on the, on the National Bank, and manufacturing. Let me pause you real quick. So we mentioned Matthew Carey now. We mentioned him earlier. But if anyone wants to do more reading on Matthew Carey, um, and I think it was two weeks ago where we talked about Matthew Carey was a publisher. He became a very successful publisher. And uh, he wrote, we talked about the, the name of the magazine was called the American Museum. 
and Nancy's got some good work that she's done on that. I've got some good work that we've done on it. We've talked about it on Sections and Stories. So Matthew Carey, who is a publisher, uh, realizes after Hamilton dies that Hamilton has a lot of great ideas, and Jefferson sort of turned the clock back. So uh, Carey is forward. What did Carey, and not just Carey, also his son, what did they do to move the, the Hamilton torch forward after Hamilton dies? Well, what Carey tries to organize political forces in Pennsylvania in particular to uh, fight, number one, to save the National Bank, which he can't save. It's it's decommissioned in, uh, when its charter runs out in 1811. And then after the... And therefore, the country has no reliable source of credit during the War of 1812. At the worst possible time. At the worst possible time. The, you know, Navy has been decimated. The, you know, Army has been reduced to less than zero. So, I mean, that's slight exaggeration, but, you know, <laughs> relative to what was needed, that was the case. So, what Matthew Carey does is he writes an extremely important piece called the Olive Branch, and it is, uh, according to what people have been able to estimate, a massive bestseller, I mean, better than common sense, you know, 100,000 copies. New versions are reprinted and reprinted and reprinted, and he puts forward there that there are faults on both sides for this disaster that has been created in the country, um, but uh what must be done, he moves more and more. Each new iteration gets more and more into the economic program that has to be done. And in the final one, or near final one in 1820, he, report, he reprints uh, three chapters from the report on manufacturers, arguing for manufacturers. It says we have to have a national bank that is involved in this. We have to have the infrastructure uh, invested in, and uh, this is absolutely crucial. And he, there, there's more organizing that he does, but he has a major impact in ultimately creating a successful policy of the second uh, Bank of the United States. And then after that gets destroyed by Jackson, um, his son, Henry Carey, uh, takes up the fight um, ultimately and becomes the economic uh, mainstay of the Republican Party and of Abraham Lincoln, uh, laying out the whole American system policy that is uh, put into effect. Uh, and, uh, you know, I did read over your post on Sedges and Stories on the 37th Congress. I now know that Lincoln's Congress was the 37th Congress, which I don't tend to think of it that way. But uh, a lot of what you go through there is that incredibly productive Congress, uh, I guess only rivaled by FDR later, um, is uh, is what I go through in my slideshow uh, when, I, when I'm presenting the American system. Um, because I believe, uh, and I think Dick Silla, um, who's a, also a Hamilton scholar, believes that Hamilton, that Lincoln is the 
realization to a large degree of the policies that Hamilton wanted to put into effect. Um, and did you hear um, that? We're connecting Hamilton in the 1790s through, you know, through the Civil War when Lincoln didn't have a choice. You know, Lincoln wanted to win the war. In order to win the war and to build the country back together again, you needed to put in place you know, a system that can, can make that happen. So let me connect some of the dots for everybody. So we talked about after Hamilton dies, uh, you know, one of the econ- economists, if you will, who picks up uh, with his torch is Matthew Carey, a publisher, and Carey's son, uh, who you mentioned, is Henry Carey. And then what was Henry Carey's connection to Lincoln? So everybody sees the, the connection. Economic advisor. He, uh, was the, he wrote a lot of, helped write a lot of the legislation, uh, the Republican platform of 1860, um, and so forth. And he continued long after, even after Lincoln's assassination, to be a major uh, economic <coughs> uh, voice uh, throughout the globally, actually. An example I would give of the 37th Congress, which is happening during a war, is the Transcontinental Railroad, right? So. We talk about this uh, other hours and on statutes and stories, but why was it that they waited until the, the, the war when the South had seceded to finally pass the law to create the, the, inter, the interstate or the, the intercontinental railroad? And the answer was that you didn't have the southern states fighting with the northern states. Now the northern states could do what they wanted, and they approved the intercontinental railroad. So maybe that segues us into infrastructure. You want to touch, touch base on how infrastructure relates to Hamilton and how, how we can tie that in today. Uh, with um, with other ways. I, I'd like to, we're almost done, and I'd like to make another point, which I think is, you know, absolutely at the core. But the infrastructure thing is, is, is critical, but at the same time, so is this question of your wealth being dependent upon your, uh, the, the intellectual improvement, the, the mental improvement of your population. Productivity uh, gains. And the only, th- which creates your productivity. And the thing that happened in the 37th Congress that I find absolutely astounding and wonderful is the land-grant colleges. I mean, I don't know that people realize, you know, those included, that was done because the federal government gave 30000 acres of land to the states, um, you know, I think a $30,000 acre plot for every uh, congressman in the state uh, to set up, to sell, and therefore to set up colleges to educate uh, people at low cost uh, throughout the country. And that included the University of California, Cornell University, you know, Texas A&M. All, you know, major universities, uh, Virginia Tech in my state, uh, well, I don't call it my state because I, <laughs> I wasn't raised here and I don't really feel at home here, but the, um, that's where I live. So, but this was absolutely phenomenal, uh, commitment by, and I think it's one of the key commitments of a republic that you are going to develop your citizenry. And when you read the American system work of the 19th century, which is so committed to improvement of, to internal improvements, which is your infrastructure, 
they always include that in that sense of internal improvement, the improvement of the level of education uh, and culture of the population, because they were committed uh, to to lifting the position of man, not just materially, but in terms of his knowledge uh, and in terms of his capabilities. Amen. So, Nancy, I'm wondering if you can just remind everybody if they want to read more, and I'm hopeful that Manny will invite you back to talk about how we translate this in 2020 on some of his other shows, but to remind everybody, what is your website, what's the name of the book, and how do they get it? Okay, well, it's, the book is Hamilton versus Wall Street, The Core Principles of the American System of Economics. You can get it on any uh, site like Amazon or my publisher, iUniverse.com, if you want to give me more money. Um, the uh, You can also find out how to get it if you go to my blog, americansystemnow.com. And how often are you updating the blog? Is there's wonderful content on that blog. I need to be as prolific as you are. Uh, well, it, it varies. Right now, since I'm teaching these couple classes, it's been fairly slow. Uh, it's usually... I aim for doing twice a week, um, but uh, every once in a while I have three days in a row, <laughs> uh, and then sometimes it's, you know, one a week. No, that is a phenomenal pace for a blogger, so I, I don't know how you pull that off, but it was a pleasure talking to you. Hey, Manny, do you have any other uh, parting words? I would like to uh, touch on the next time we meet, that uh, the 1850 Coinage Act. I'd like to know exactly when we... be. The audience would uh, probably be very interested when we had a national currency. And, of course, my side of the story that uh, doesn't seem to be talked about and galvanized the impact of the Spanish silver dollar on the national currency and the markings on the back of the Ochos Reales de España coin that is indicative of the dollar sign today. So stay tuned, my folks. That'll That's for the audience for a later day, and that's for the audience to sit there and mingle in their minds of everything that was talked about today because you both are, are quite a pleasure to listen to and it's nice to, to learn on the radio. Well, Nancy, thank, thank you, you very so much, much for joining us. Take yes. care, my friends, and uh, stay free. You're listening to... Okay, absolutely. Thanks a lot. Take care. You're listening you to You're listening to WSQF, Blink Radio, Statues and Stories Hour. Take care until next week.